please remain standing if you can for the reading of God's word out of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Hear now God's holy word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You all can be seated. Um, I'm going to shift this. Odd angle. Um, hello, welcome again to our worship this morning. I want to begin uh, rather straightforwardly. This text that we just read, uh, I've read it many, many times over the years in my life uh, in uh, t- good times, bad times, in ministry, out of ministry. Most recently, we were working through the text of Ephesians uh, for our, my college ministry. I was, was taking my students through uh, the book. But as I was reading this passage, I don't have a fancy intro beyond being gripped by this request that Paul has. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. This, I think, is a poignant request, and it's at the heart of what he's after. But to understand why he's making this request, to understand why he can make this request, you have to, you have to get a feel for what's going on in the letter. So we have to understand what's going on in the letter, letter that we are, we're in. The letter to the Ephesians is a letter written from Paul, an early church church planter and pastor and apostle, to a church that he planted in Ephesus. He's an early church leader writing to a small church in part of the Greco-Roman Empire, modern-day Turkey, right? And this is a house church made up of, you know, I don't know how many, 20, 30, 50 tops uh, people in this great big city. This is not when Christianity was a massive world religion. This was back in the early days, the first 15, 20 years, when it was a small Middle Eastern cult that had started to filter out from Israel and Jerusalem out into the broader Greco-Roman world. And so Paul is writing to this group of early church 
Jews and then also Gentiles, that is non-Jews, who had come to Christ, people whom he had loved, people whom he had prayed for, people whom he had cared for for many years and yet was now distant from. And part of what Paul's point in this letter is trying to do is, is what basically your pastors try to do every week when they preach God's word. They're trying to retell the story of Christ and re-narrate your life and the world in light of Christ to reorient you. See, most sociologists and philosophers, a lot of sociologists and philosophers nowadays will tell you that we live our lives by stories, right? You, and you, you tell yourself a story in your head. You've never written it down. But you tell yourself a story in your head about the life you live. You've got a beginning, a middle, and an end. You've got, you got a place you came from, a place you're going, and, and the part of the story that you're living in now. And you have small-scale stories. There's you, you know, walking out the door of your local house to go to the job. To, and then there's, then there's the, the, the grand macro stories of, I am an American. I come from a nation that was, we have the descendants of, of people seeking religious freedom and so on and so forth. And you, you tell this grand America story. Or maybe you tell a global story, right? Uh, 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 a story of history. History began however many years ago, and now we are you know, there's the progressive story of, like, we're now marching into the future uh, with onward material and social and moral progress, and, you know, we climbed up from the primeval soup, and now we're uh, moving into some glorious, I don't know, AI-driven future. Whatever it is, you, you, everybody's living out of these stories, and the thing is, people did so in the first century as well, right? In the, in the world of Ephesus, you had the stories of the Greco-Roman gods, right? You had the great, you had the great temple to the goddess um, of, of fertility, um, Artemis, right, in, in that city. And so you have this story about the great goddess Artemis who gives fertility and life. You have the story about the worship of the god emperor, right? In those days, the, the, the Roman ruler of, of the known world was not just a guy. He was a god. He was the son of a god to whom fealty and honor were to be owed and given. And so People were surrounded in this world. They were surrounded by the architecture, not of golf, but of, of the gods, right? And so as you dwelt in this world, you were inundated with it. And those stories were very much a temptation for you to start understanding your story in light of them. And the pressures and the ethics and the way of living was driven from those meta-stories. And so what Paul does is he tells a different story. He tells a story about a crucified Jew who lived and died and rose again and, and ascended into heaven, proving that he was not just some guy. He was actually God himself come in the flesh in order to live and die and rise again and, 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 and be seated on the throne of the cosmos, ruling over all things, uniting all things in him. And that is the story that Paul is telling to his people and reminding them, you're in that story. You've been brought into that world. That's the true world. That's the true narrative of history. It's not about, it's not about the emperor. It's not about um, the gods. It's about the one God putting all things back together in Christ. And he wants them to understand their lives in light of the all-encompassing blessings that they have because they have joined up with him, because they put their faith in him, and they've been united with him. And that's the big picture, right? 
It's important. It's also important to know not just that Paul has been writing, but from where he's been writing this. So he's writing them this, this big, grand-scale story in order to remind them and resituate them, but he's also writing them uh, from, from, a, from a weird place, a place you might not have expected. He's writing them from prison. As verse 3, 1 reminds us, he is a prisoner. He is suffering in that moment, the extreme of political and social and economic marginalization for the sake of sharing the good news, the gospel. And his first concern for his congregation is that as they, as they consider his sufferings, they not lose heart. And that makes sense, right? Not only do they love him, not only is Paul somebody who's cared for them and prayed for them and, and they care about they don't want to lose heart, he's also the guy who brought them in on this whole thing. Right? He's the one who came around proclaiming a new king, a new lord, a new emperor uh, uh, over the cosmos and all things, and suddenly he's in jail. He's in prison. And you might have thought that the lord of the whole world, the lord of the cosmos, might be able to keep his main guy out of prison. What kind of a lord is this? What kind of a god is this? What kind of strength is involved in this kind of kingship? And you might start to worry about your own Life. You might start to worry about your own position, right? Maybe you'd start to worry that you'd start to run up against the same oppression, the same opposition. Maybe you're just surprised. Life after Jesus has all these blessings, right? But how is prison? How is suffering involved? And this, this, is, this, is, this is where Paul moves to comfort them. And this is where some of you Maybe this is where all of us may be this morning. Is none of us are here sitting in chains. None of us. I don't think Robert sent you guys an email lately. Hi guys, I'm in prison. Um, I don't think anybody has had that lately, right? We live in the U.S. It is California, but so far there's there's no severe, wide scale political persecution yet, right? Um, so maybe you think this doesn't apply, but the reality is, at the end of the day, every single one of you is either walking through or heading into or just coming out of suffering in general, right? There's suffering for the sake of the gospel, and then there's just the suffering, the everyday horrible, terrible suffering of walking into the doctor's office and getting a diagnosis that you never wanted to hear for you, for your spouse, for your child. There's walking into your boss's office and getting the, the little pink slip that you never wanted to see. There's, there's the doctor's office that you keep having to show up at. There's the, there's the, there's the suffering. There's the funeral home. There's the, all, all of the normal suffering in life that just makes up the fabric of reality in a fallen world that you will endure. Right? Cancer. Divorce. Heartbreak, rejection, all of these things can and may come to you in this life. And so the question becomes, how do you not lose heart in the face of everyday suffering? How do you cope with it? How do you deal with it in a way that takes in light these realities? And, and, because the question is, you have to face what are your options, right? There's the time-honored option of thinking about suffering when you face it. Uh, Time-honored time often of... I, my, my words are stumbling today. You could just stuff it, right? That's, that's a classic, right? You're suffering, but hey, you know what? It's fine. I'm okay. 
I'm just going to grin and bear it and muscle through it. Um, there's the Christian version of that, which is, it's fine, it's okay, God's good, it's all right, God's good. God's really, he's good. And you just say that over and over and over again while your insides, you know, shrivel and die, right? So there's stuffing it, and then there's Christian stuffing it, and then there's owning it, which is very popular, right? You could just own your suffering and be very honest and be very open and, 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 then, and, and kind of shrivel into a, a ball of cynicism and despair or maybe post about it online and have it become your whole personality. And then and the, the problem isn't so much that you're just suffering alone, it's that everybody's suffering with you uh, because you made a YouTube channel about it. And now, like, and, and it's just, okay, so there's that and you're wallowing in it and suffering becomes your whole world and your whole identity and your whole life. And that doesn't seem too healthy either, right? So there's stuffing it, there's, there's wallowing in it. What, what, what is... What's Paul's actual Christian option, though? What's Paul's actual Christian option? Paul gives, Paul, Paul gives his, his church a command not to lose heart. That is to not fake, not be angry or give up, but to bear up even in the midst of real suffering, to own it but not be dominated or, 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 or domineered by it. And the way he can do this the assurance that he has to encourage his people to do this is, I think, in this little phrase, this little phrase, the manifold wisdom of God. Paul has an eye on the manifold wisdom of God. And what we see here in this text is that Paul sees his sufferings not as isolated events, but in light of the broader plan that God has been revealing through the whole of human history. And all of the scriptures to sum up all of human history in and through the church and in Christ. Now, Paul says this is a mystery, right? He says this is a mystery that's been hidden for ages. That over the course of, of the scriptures, as you read them, you read the story of God's plan to put everything back that was put wrong in the garden. And that God has this long-scale large-scale plan running from, from Abraham on through uh, the covenants, on through Moses and the Exodus and, and the covenant with David and forming a kingdom and forming a people and giving them a law and giving them worship and letting them fall into sin and letting them go into exile and then having one man come from the line and lineage of this people who lives and then dies and rises again and somehow through his life, death, and resurrection, God starts to put everything back together again, including Jew and Gentile. And you start to see that this is, this is a long scale, this is a large scale plan that has been in place for ages and has been a mystery. And Paul sees his suffering in the middle of this. And what Paul begins to understand is that God is displaying in this large scale plan an astonishing depth of wisdom in this mystery. And it's not just any wisdom. It's a manifold, it's a many-splendored, many-sided, multi-aspectival wisdom that's appropriate to an infinite God who has no limits. And it's this wisdom that allows Paul to see his suffering in light of the whole and to bear up under it and not be crushed by it even while he doesn't deny it. And so what I want to do this morning is unpack some of the layers to that manifold wisdom. 
right? And what I want us to see is that there's at least four, four strands, four layers to this wisdom that Paul uh, unfolds in this text for his people. And what I want us to look at is the fact that the, the wisdom of God is gracious, it's eternal and creative, it's paradoxical, and it's hopeful. And my hope is that we start to get, get a sense of the wisdom of God, that we begin to gain strength and perspective in order to bear up under the suffering that will come to us in our own lives. And so with that, I want us to look very, very quickly first at what we'll call the gracious wisdom of God. And the first thing we can notice is that Paul highlights God's wisdom is merciful, right? God's wisdom comes to Paul uh, not through his own deserts. Paul's very clear here. He was saved and brought into the family of God uh, not through what he had earned, not because he was entitled, not because he was so awesome, not because he deserved it, not because of his lineage, not because of his intellect. No, he was a messenger of the gospel because of grace. In fact, he's the least likely candidate to receive and be given this call to be a messenger of the gospel. He's the least of the saints, the least of God's servants, because in his former life, he had actually hated Christians and persecuted them and pursued them locked them up, and had them killed, right? You can read about this in Acts. And yet God called him from this life and not only saved him, right? Here's the amazing thing about Paul's life. God didn't just save Paul and then put him in a corner and say, okay, think about what you've done for the next 50 years. You're, you're lucky you're in here, right? You're lucky you're in this room. This is how a lot, of people, a lot of us think about God's grace. You're lucky you're in the room. Instead, God calls him, and he calls him, to be one of the greatest missionaries, the greatest apostles, greatest messengers of grace that the world has ever seen. Why? Because he makes him the poster boy of grace. Because it, has, it was so obviously abundant in his life. That was the only way he got in the room. And yet because of that, he could now invite others with a power and a confidence and a boldness and a willingness to suffer that almost nobody could match. And this is important because here's the thing. When you're in the middle of suffering, if you do not understand the graciousness of the love of God for you, it is easy to fall into the blame game, right? And some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but those of you who've suffered, you do, right? Because when you go through real pain, you go through real suffering, your first instinct is to try and pick somebody to blame, right? Often, the first target is the first person in the room that you see, which is you, right? You look in the mirror like, I... I must be suffering because I did something, right? What did I do? It, it must be because of the thing I did when I was 15. It must be because of the way I've lived my life. It must be because of, the, because of some secret sin that I have not discerned, I didn't repent hard enough of, I didn't atone for. And that is why this terrible, awful thing is happening to me. And so there's a tendency to self-flagellate and to search the patterns of your life for a justification for the pain and torment that you're enduring that God has imposed on you, you think, because you're as a judgment. The other possible target, however, is that some of you, some of you don't think that. Some of us, I think, no, actually, there's nothing I've done that merits this. In fact, I've actually been pretty good. Uh, I don't know about you, I've been at church every week. I have tithed. I have raised my children properly. I, I, found, a, I found a good Reformed church. I found, uh, I read, I Bible religiously, I don't, I don't listen to the bad music. I, I, I've put in. I've put in. And, and to be honest, God, um, this, feels, this feels like a contract breach 
to be honest, God, I, I, I shouldn't have to be here. I shouldn't have to go to this doctor's appointment. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to be in this meeting. I shouldn't have to be meeting with this lawyer. I shouldn't have to be at this funeral. I, 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 shouldn't, I shouldn't still have to take these pills. You failed, God. You failed me. And here's the thing. If you do not understand the heart of the gospel, which is this. The heart of the gospel is Jesus getting what you deserve on the cross. The heart of the gospel is the Son of God out of love and out of kindness and out of mercy going and dying to pay for everything you've put wrong, to make up for everything you've ever broken and shattered, every little, every little dark secret sin, to cover it over with his grace and with his mercy and with his love. And here's the thing. When you start to understand that gospel and the fact that you have received him as a, as a gift of grace from a God who loves you, what does that do? That rules out the blame game, right? Because God isn't punishing you for your sins. God isn't making you pay for what you've done. At most, it's a chastisement. At, at most, it's a, it's a fatherly discipline. We can talk about that at some point. But it's not because he's making you pay for your sins because Jesus paid for them. And it can't be because God doesn't love you. It can't be because God isn't coming through for you because he already came through for you. In the greatest hour of your need, the suffering that you endured that you didn't even know you were enduring, which was an alienation from God. See, here's the thing. If you don't understand the graciousness of God, the temptation will be for you to be alienated from the one source of hope you have in the middle of your pain and suffering, which is God himself. And this is why you need to understand that the wisdom of God is a gracious wisdom. The second thing you need to understand is that it's an eternal and creative wisdom. How, how do we get here? Why do I put these things two together? Well, Paul, Paul notes two things that kind of go together. First, he talks about the eternal purpose that God has realized in Jesus Christ our Lord, and this purpose is one that's, that we talked about. It's been the mystery for ages, the, the summing up of Jew and Gentile together in Scripture. What we talked about is, is that this is a plan that had been put in plan for, for, for the whole of human history, but people had not really seen. They'd only glimpsed it. The prophets had, had prophesied edges of it, right? People could not have discerned this on their own. And yet it was something that underlay the whole of human history, all the way back from Adam through Abraham through the Exodus and, and all of that. And this is why Paul says that this is the God, the God who put this plan in motion is the God who created all things because this is not a plan that was not an afterthought. This was, it was an afterthought, right? The plan of salvation that we see laid out in Scripture is not God kind of MacGyvering his way through history bit by bit piece by piece. Oh, they did this. Well, yes, now I'll do that. Now, No, this is the plan that God has decreed from all of eternity. From before the creations, the creation was, was, was made, God envisioned Christ summing up all things and paying for sins and redeeming all things. And so this is the plan of a God who holds the cosmos in view and all of human history 
in a single instant. This is the God of creation. This is the God who sets universal constants and, 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 and gravitational forces in such a way that you know, the, the universe and, and protons and neutrons and all that don't, don't fly, fly apart at levels that you and I can only fathom. And when you start to understand that, this is important, that God is the God of creation. Because if you don't recall that, one of the most common reasons that we lose heart in the middle of our suffering is that we begin to tell ourselves a story that if I can't see any possible reason for God allowing what I'm going through, then he must not have one. Right? Now, as soon as you say it, you begin to, understand, you begin to see how silly that sounds, right? But it's one of those bits of truth that our hearts are very tempted to latch onto. And this is part of the point of the speech uh, that God gives to Job in Job chapter 38. For those of you who haven't been there in a while, the story of Job is, is a story of suffering, right? Job is a great man, a righteous man who suffers greatly, more than any of us in this room probably will ever suffer. He suffers loss of his house. He suffers loss of his, his businesses, his children, his health, and even his good reputation as people come and start to accuse him. You must have, they, they buy into the blame game. You must have done something wrong for God to allow, have allowed you to suffer this much. And so Job, Job starts to make a case against God, and he calls God to account. He says, God, I have lived rightly, and you are good, so you need to give me, you need to give me something here. I, I want my day in court, God. I want to make my case against you that I don't deserve this. And so God comes to him. God comes to him in Job uh, chapter 38, and God comes and responds to him with his own questions. He says to him, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? If you keep reading... God is maybe being a little bit salty uh, towards Job, but you have to realize God isn't, just, God isn't just flattening Job just to flatten him. It's not just God flexing on him, right? God is trying to open Job's eyes by expanding his understanding of, of what God has been up to that's far beyond Job's meager, meager visual conceptual reach, his history, Right, uh, there's, there's uh, one philosopher who points this out, uh, Eleanor Stump, she has this book called Wandering in Darkness, and talked about the, the, the indignant anger of a parent. I, I'm gonna ask you parents, I don't know, you, there's a lot of parents in here, a lot of children here, you ever had that moment where one of your kids, or maybe you've been that kid who, uh, your, your mom didn't give you what you wanted, and you looked up at her in a moment of just amazing boldness and said, you don't even love me, like, if you really love me, you'd, you'd do this for me right now. And what was mom's response? Was it like, oh, sweetie? Or was it more like, I don't love you? I don't love Where were you when I went through 894 hours of labor and I kept you alive all the times you tried to throw yourself off of the table? I have two toddlers right now. If I'm a little sleep deprived, it's just basically keeping these two children alive all day long, and they don't understand the amount of times they've almost killed themselves on our watch if I had not caught them. 
if we had not lost sleep and hour after hour and year after year off of our lives, like, I don't love you? Where were you? Where were you? Tell me. There is something to that tone. And God's look at Job and all that he has done to lovingly provide for Job and all of creation. Where were you? You have no, you have no grasp. And as different as, as, different as, as, as my toddler's understanding is from mine, infinitely more is my understanding from God's. In which case, we simply cannot say, if I don't know why he's allowing it, he must not have a good reason. You have to take refuge in the creative and eternal wisdom of a God that is utterly beyond you. Right? That is actually the foundation of your own salvation. Next, and this one isn't quite as clear, so that's the creative and eternal wisdom of God, and these are shorter. Um, the paradoxical wisdom. Right? The wisdom of God, you have to understand it's, it's, a, it's a non-obvious one. It's a paradoxical one. It's, not, it's the kind of thing that you wouldn't have seen coming. I mean, think about how ludicrous and absurd the gospel story is. God decides to accomplish his ultimate victory over his enemies, the powers of sin, death, and the devil, by becoming a man and then letting them win. Right? He goes about reconciling humanity to himself by letting humanity crucify him. He sets about reuniting Jew and Gentile together by letting them tear him apart. Indeed, God's greatest glory on earth, his greatest moment of victory, his greatest moment in which all of the beauty of his nature is displayed in a single moment is when he is lifted up high on a cross Naked, covered with shame, mocked, and spit on. And this is when the Gospel of John says that all will see his glory. It's the glory of the crucified one. The beaten one. The bloody one. That's the beautiful God. That's the paradox of the cross. That's the paradoxical gospel. It's one you couldn't have seen coming. It's one you couldn't have predicted. It's one you wouldn't have made up. It's one you wouldn't even have wanted, but it's exactly the one you needed. Is bringing sinners into sonship through the death of his own son. And you need to know this. You need to know that God's wisdom is paradoxical. Because that's the only thing that's going to answer the, the challenge of shame during your suffering. A lot, of, a lot of people don't talk about this, but suffering brings a great amount of shame. Not just Christian suffering. So you're, when you're suffering for the gospel and that it's inherently about shame, it's inherently about getting called a bigot or, 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 or losing your job or, or being driven out of, uh, out of polite society, that sort of thing. But, but just the everyday suffering, a lot of people don't understand um, sickness or physical suffering. There's weakness, there's a vulnerability that can lead us to want to suffer quietly so you don't bear the scorn, the contempt, or, or even worse, the kind pity of others. Right? For a lot of us, it's shameful to not be a model of high performance, of strength, of, of, of manly capacity or, or womanly like omnicompetence to have those days where you, you can't even get out of bed. And it takes everything in you just to feed yourself. 
And so some of you come to church and you lie about what you're going through because you're worried about what your brothers and sisters in Christ will say about you. You lie about the pain that you have of a child who's alienated from the gospel or your own doubts or your own struggles or your physical maladies or the difficulties in your marriage or the loneliness, the deep loneliness you feel because you're ashamed. Paul doesn't think that way. No, Paul knows that in his suffering, he's actually following and joining in the suffering of his Lord. As Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. And in this case, for the Christian, suffering is the road to glory alongside the master. It's through the cross it's through death, it's through suffering that one attains the resurrection, the transformation. And it's even, it's not even just through Christian suffering, through persecution. What many of us don't understand and what we, we resist knowing until we're walking through it is that oftentimes suffering is exactly the road to glory in your own lives where God begins to reveal what's truly inside of us. And he begins to, it's, it's one of the only ways that we, he gets to actually strip out all the times that we pray, God, make me holy, God, make me holy. And it's only in suffering that he reveals your idols. That he reveals the things that you hang on to and you grip for dear life. Our money, our comfort, our self-conception of as powerful, intellectually formidable, or, I don't know, just good people. And the ugly really starts to come out, and that's when he can get rid of it. And that's when he can pur purify you like gold in the flames, all the dross comes out. And so Paul is not ashamed of his suffering because suffering is actually the road to beauty and glory in the Christian life. So you absolutely cannot forget the paradoxical wisdom of God. And finally, briefly, it's a hopeful wisdom, and this is not as obvious into the text but the fact of the matter is that the wisdom of God that he displays in Christ, the Christ that Paul is talking about in this text is not only the crucified Christ. He's talking about the risen and ascended Christ. And this is what gets us into um, really the, the fact that God's wisdom doesn't keep Jesus hanging on the cross forever. Right? There's a resurrection on the other side. And it's only because we're united to the currently risen and ascended Jesus that we can be united in the church. And this is important because here's the thing. This is the final challenge of pain. There's a lot of challenges in pain. But, but one of the things that I think often threatens to collapse us, to, to keep us from enduring in the middle of suffering, is the idea that this is all there is. Right? That... that, 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 that the current horizon of your life is the one that will be there forever. Now, I don't share this to gain sympathy, but um, when I was 24, I went through a, kind of a, a weird, I don't know, full body system collapse. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. The doctor still didn't, never gave me a good explanation. But um, essentially, I had bilateral knee pain, uh, vertigo, um, just body pains and aches that, uh, 
that lasted for several years. I, I, I couldn't walk, I couldn't sit, I couldn't lay down without pain for, for a significant amount of time. Several years, I just kind of de- declined from the peak of my physical health uh, to several years of just uh, uh, of, of pain. And it's not the worst thing that anybody suffered in the world, but, the, but the, the, the hardest part about it during those years is before slowly starting to climb out of the pit um, was the thought that not, not the pain itself, but that this was all there ever was going to be. That there was, there was nothing else on the horizon of my life coming. Right? There was nothing on the other side of this. And the thing is, what we see in Jesus is that actually this pain is not the end. After suffering comes relief. For Christians, after death comes a resurrection. And so we have hope, and hope is what gives us assurance that we need to not lose heart. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians that the things that he's enduring, the beatings, the the suffering, are light and momentary afflictions that are producing in us a weight of glory that far outweighs everything we're currently enduring. And so at the end of the day, I cannot tell you why you're suffering or why you will suffer. But what I can do is give you four questions to help you meditate on the gracious, wise, eternal, paradoxical, and hopeful wisdom of God in the future and in the current moment. The first one is this. Has anything I'm walking through robbed me of the gracious assurance I have of salvation in Christ? of the death and resurrection of the Son of God? Can I still go boldly to God with confidence and prayer because of what he's done for me? Second, do I think I'm seeing the whole picture? Have I lost sight of the fact that God exists far beyond me? Am I considering my shame rightly? Is this really shameful or is this the preparation of a future glory that I cannot anticipate? And fourth, most simply, is this anything that a resurrection won't fix? Is this anything a resurrection won't fix? This is the wisdom of God for us. This is the wisdom of God for you and for me, and it's the same wisdom of God that carried Paul and comforted the Ephesian people. It's the wisdom in Christ. And so let's go to him in prayer and receive from him comfort. Holy Father, you are the all-wise God, the all-knowing God, the God who is holy, the God who is good, the God who is pure, the God who is light and life. The God who is summing up all things in Christ and working out a plan far beyond what we could ever hope or imagine or conceive of in our own strength and wisdom. God, I pray you right now that you would help us to take comfort. Take comfort in that good news. Take comfort in that message, and not just in that message, but in that man, Jesus Christ, who lived and suffered and died and rose again for us as the wisdom of God incarnate. He is the gracious, eternal, paradoxical, and hopeful 
wisdom that we need most. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.